0: Welcome to The Licensing Podcast, where we take what may seem like the extremely boring and try to make it a little less boring. Each episode is geared towards a story to help provide you with some of the background of where these topics come from, why they work the way they work, and what you can do about it on your test. We're going to provide a lot of realism. Unfortunately, you can only provide so much fun. Today's session is entitled Paying Taxes. Now, before I get started, I have to provide a disclaimer. I am not a tax professional. I am not telling you what you need to do on your personal tax bill. But what we have noticed is we have a pretty diverse population that we hire, and sometimes we get a lot of people who have never paid taxes once in their life. Their parents are still claiming them, or at least somebody like that. So the entire intent of this particular story is just to give a brief overview on when we say pay taxes, what do we mean? It goes far in helping you explain the tax section when we start talking about sales proceeds and cost basis. A lot of students tend to struggle with why in the tax world do I want high cost basis and low sales proceeds? That tends to be exactly opposite of what you want in the investment world. For the story, I'm just going to use me. We're going to pretend that I'm going to pay my taxes this year. Let's say that I made. $60,000 this year. Nice round number. I'm also not going to use the real tax bracket for right now because I want to keep the numbers as simple as possible. So in general, what happens is that $60,000 comes to me in these every two week paychecks. And if you've noticed, when you look at that paycheck, every single one of those paychecks, we take some money out for federal taxes and state taxes. What you might not be aware of is in a very loose kind of way, the IRS is keeping track of how much money they're taking out of those paychecks. So but at the end of the year, it's very plain to me, my employer and the IRS that while I made $60,000 in taxes this year, or sorry, $60,000 in income this year, I paid 10% of that in taxes. I paid $6,000 in taxes to the IRS. The real question when we say, did I pay my taxes is, was that the correct amount for me to pay? So when April 14th comes around, because I'm one of those guys who likes to pay for the day right before it's due. So when April 14th rolls around and I have to pay my taxes, basically what I'm doing is justifying, did the government deserve to take $6,000 from me in taxes out of last year's paychecks? The way we do that is on an escalating scale. So at $60,000, $6,000 was 10%. At face value, I just paid 10% taxes. But as you, most of you may know already, our IRS code has a lot of what we call deductions in it. There are reasons, or some would say excuses, for why I should or should not have to pay the full amount in my taxes. Uh, some examples, of so some pretty common ones. If I own a house... That's a good American responsible thing to do. And so the government incentivizes me to want to own a house by saying, hey, Jason, every dollar in mortgage payment you made, the interest part, keep track of that. And at the end of the year, you can quote unquote deduct that. Now, when we say deduct, what we simply mean is you can skim it off the top. So let's pretend this year that I paid $10,000 in mortgage interest. Basically, what I'm doing is I'm looking at the government and saying, government, I didn't really make $60,000 this year because I can deduct the $10,000 in mortgage interest. I only really made $50,000 this year. And there's a whole swath of deductions available to people. I can get a deduction for having a spouse. I get a deduction for having a kid and another kid. If I have a particularly low income, I qualify for some other kinds of deductions. If I'm self-employed, a lot of the business expenses of running my business become tax deductible. In fact, in the old days, you used to be able to get this massive book from like the post office that would show you all of the available IRS deductions. So going back to the original example, I made $60,000. I happened to be in the 10% tax bracket, so it made sense to take $6,000 from me. But in April, when I go to do my taxes, I actually claim all these different deductions. I claim so many deductions that they all add up to $40,000 worth of deductions. What ends up happening then is I I go to the government and say, I really, quote unquote, in tax land, only made $20,000 this year. So the fact that you guys took $6,000 from me is not right. If I'm in the 10% tax bracket, and I quote-unquote really only made $20,000 this year, then government, you should have only taken $2,000 from me. So that's a scenario where I would be getting a refund. They'd say, yeah, right, and we took $6,000 from you, so here's a $4,000 check back. Conversely, some other things might have happened. They might have originally estimated I was in the 10 percent tax bracket, and it turns out I made more money this year. I sold a lot in commissions, and I ended up in a higher tax bracket. So I really made 120, but I've only paid six throughout the year. So 10 percent would be 12,000, I'm 6,000 short. So in that scenario, now I owe the federal government money, and I would write them a check to make it even. So in general, that's the very basic way in which you need to be thinking about taxes. And that's why you'll notice people really like to keep track of what their tax deductions are. It's because they're basically shrinking the amount of money the government can say they legitimately made that year, which the end result is it's increasing the likelihood of them getting some kind of refund in April when they go to pay their taxes. Another testable topic in this space is the alternate minimum tax. So let's hit that one real quickly as well. I'm not particularly good at taxes. I make $60,000 every year. I pay my taxes. I try to shrink that number as much as I can, but no matter how good I am at deductions or not, I can't ever get to the point where I tell the government I made zero money last year. People who are rich or tend to pay attorneys because they're rich and have that kind of money can find ways. They're smart enough or have enough money to find smart enough people that they can get to zero. The Warren Buffetts of the world commonly do get their deductions down to zero. And it became a bit of a political issue for a while. Why is it that average Joe Jason is paying taxes because he's not smart enough to get to zero. And he's got a family and a limited income where the Warren Buffetts of the world, with their millions of dollars, were able to get to zero and pay no taxes. That doesn't make sense. The, the millionaire can afford the taxes, right? So somewhere along the lines, we created the alternate minimum tax. The AMT basically is a deduction booklet, like the first one. Only it's very, very limited. There's not nearly as many deductions in it. Now, most people don't really know this, but technically, from an IRS procedural standpoint, when you go to do your taxes, you end up doing both. I calculate my deductions, and I calculate my AMT deductions. Not that I actually do that, but I'm supposed to. And then I have to pay the higher of the two numbers. Well, if the IRS calculated my AMT for me, they could probably get those deductions down to zero. With my standard book, I can't. So I pay my standard deductions, my higher deductions, and not pay the AMT. That makes me not AMT qualified. If we look at the Warren Buffetts of the world, if we use both of the books, with the standard deduction book and all of its itemized things in there, they can get down to zero. They've been doing it for years. When they do the deductions out of the AMT version, though, they can't get to zero. And because they have to pay the higher of the two, they pay the AMT version of their taxes. Because they pay their AMT version of the taxes, this is what then makes them AMT qualified. AMT qualified is actually just a really politically nice way of saying rich person. And if you have an AMT qualified bond, as you learned about in the debt section, then you lose the tax benefits associated with that bond, which should now make sense because we're trying to limit the amount of taxes you can get away with not paying. Probably the last thing that we want to talk about in the tax section then is you got to remember that there are different buckets of taxes. So there's earned income taxes. I get a salary, and my deductions for my children reduce that salary. But there's also other buckets of income. Specifically, the one we want to talk about here is portfolio income. If I buy a stock and sell it at a later date for a profit, that's money I earned. How do I get taxed on that? The way that the IRS does that is they keep track of a pretty simple formula. They take the sales proceeds you got all year. They minus out the cost basis of what it costs you to purchase those things all year. And if the number is positive, that means you earned money, capital gain. If the number is negative, that means you lost money, capital loss. So sales proceeds minus cost basis equals positive is capital gains, negatives are capital losses. Sales proceeds are always calculated on things you sell, whether you sold it first or second or third, or I don't care when, if it's a sale, it's a sales proceeds. Cost basis is for things you buy. And again, the order does not matter. You buy first, you buy second, you buy third, you buy a millionth. Anytime you see the word buy, there's your cost basis. So what you want from a trading perspective is to buy a stock at 40, cost basis of 40, sell the stock at 50, sales proceeds of 50 and have a $10 gain. That makes you feel good in investment land. However, that becomes directly problematic for tax land because that $10 gain has to now be added to your total pot and has to be taxed. And if you're really good at investments and you get that number really big, you move yourself into higher and higher tax brackets. And that becomes a problem. So you want to use completely legal ways to inflate your cost basis Make it look bigger than it was. You really bought the stock at 40, but because you're allowed to add the commission in, you have a cost basis of 42. And you wanted to use legal ways to diminish your sales proceeds. You sold at 50, but because you're allowed on that side to take the commissions out, it's like you sales proceeds at 48. So you really bought at 40 and sold at 50, but from a tax paper perspective, you bought at 42 and sold at 48. And your $10 gain just turned into a $6 gain. Still has to be taxed. Capital gains are capital gains. They got to be taxed, but less likely to push you into another bracket, even though you really kept the whole amount. Tax shelters, which I'm not going to go into, just take that to the extreme. They're investments that were designed to really massively inflate cost basis on paper, really massively shrink sales proceeds on paper, even if you really had tangible assets that you were using on a daily basis. So once again, to summarize, taxes is a little bit of a game that you and the government play where you make a certain amount of money and that determines what tax bracket you're in. So you want to use legal deductions to show the government you quote unquote made less money than you actually did because that moves you down tax brackets, reduces your total tax bill to the government. AMT is a way of preventing the extremely rich in the world of getting all the way down to zero. So that's our tax discussion. Thanks for joining me and uh, have a good day.